Welcome to Hartford HealthCare's podcast series, Coping Through COVID. I'm Anne Rondepierre. Our guest today is Dr. John Santo Pietro, Physician in Chief, Hartford HealthCare Behavioral Health Network. Thanks for joining us, John. In this episode, we're going to focus on our frontline people, both clinical and non-clinical, who are tasked with some unprecedented challenges. So first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. And, and thanks, Anne, for doing this. This is such an important uh, podcast to be hosting right now in the midst of this. And uh, so I uh, am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network at Hartford HealthCare and very proud and thankful to to serve alongside Pat Reamer in leading the uh, network of really about 3,000 people that get up every day and do amazing work um, serving our community and people with uh, behavioral health uh, needs. And one thing I might add is that uh, my two inspirations for the work that I do are the patients that we serve and the staff that we work with. And in a time like this, I have to say, my inspiration is just uh, immense uh, um, coming from the staff and the work that they are doing day in and day out right now. Now, we'd like to tap into your expertise to help us understand and perhaps manage some of the inevitable stress, worry, and even some of the fear our frontline workers are contending with right now. We are amidst the COVID surge in our area. I'm happy to try to help, and I would start by saying that this is in no way uh, a lecture. Uh, This is not something that is uh, amenable to lectures. This is something that we are learning from each other about all the time, but I'm happy to talk with you and give you some of my ideas and observations and and maybe learn together with you. Um, So one of the things that I would say about this uh, crisis is that it's uh, really unprecedented. I think everybody has a sense of that, but unprecedented because of how pervasive it is. So it it, it reaches us at home, at our workplace, uh, you know, our kids at school. There's no place to escape it. So that's unprecedented. Also, there's something different about uh, dealing with the COVID crisis versus other natural disasters. If you think about a hurricane or a tornado, or even if you think about a a trauma like 9-11, those were discrete in time, and there's a a beginning and an end, and this is uh, ongoing. So that's really unique and difficult in managing uh, stress, the way that this is ongoing. We have a sense of a a wave or a surge coming, and have a sense of maybe when that's going to happen, but it's it's really got a different time signature, so to speak. And thirdly, it's unprecedented in um, the degree to which there is uncertainty. And by that, I mean, so first of all, human beings really don't like uncertainty. And actually, those of us that go into medicine maybe like it even less. If you think about the idea of sort of mastering something, the first time you learn how to tie your shoe or ride a bike, those of us in in medicine tend to like to know what we're doing. And this is not helping because there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, how to detect who has the virus, how much supply do we have with PPE or testing, when's the, you know, surge going to come. And and that's, uh, I, I think, a third aspect of the way in which this is unprecedented, which makes it really difficult to manage. Yes, your points about the uncertainty and the lack of an end date for this is for all of us, that's going to manifest in some fear and anxiety. But for those on the front line, that is bound to generate some exhaustion and potentially a loss of sleep. Can you address that for us? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really great of you to point out the, the importance of sleep. I mean, you might say, why pick one thing to, to focus on? I mean, we'll be talking about a number of things, but to talk about this one first, sleep is so important. And if I could wave one magic wand uh, to, to help people with one thing, it might actually be sleep. So not only does it impact how we are able to perform in our you know job and at home because we uh, our, our brains need to to recover uh, each night, but it also, as a lot of people know, the, the degree to which you get sleep impacts your immunity. So quite literally, the, the way in which our sleep is being disrupted could make us more vulnerable to what it is we're trying to fight here. Uh, sleep's a complicated thing. There's no kind of quick, easy fix for it getting back to normal. However, I would say a couple things about it. One is that uh, just in general, uh, making sure that people make time for sleep. So we're all very busy, um, different routines, working different shifts, working late hours, but being very um, careful about holding a boundary around hours for sleep is really important. Also, some of the sleep hygiene things we talk with our patients about. So trying not to eat or drink a couple hours before uh, going to bed. Um, trying to keep the the room on the cool side, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And one other technique that I find very helpful and relevant as I talk with people about it, it has to do with people are waking up overnight and not able to get back to sleep. And uh, believe it or not, there was some wisdom uh, when people used to say, count sheep. So what did they mean by that? Well, if if you wake up overnight, The trick is to not allow your brain to kick into executive functioning or what we think of as like the verbal brain. Once you start thinking about what do I have to do tomorrow, should I make a list, this and that, then it's a lot harder. So if you can catch yourself and either try to get back into the dream you were having, if that's possible, or actually begin counting things, sheep maybe, but um, even just counting your breaths, believe it or not, it's almost like boring yourself back to sleep. Now, I know um, that might sound something like, well, is that going to work? It's certainly worth a try because it's really uh, something that I hear about a lot uh, these days as I talk with people. Well, that's some great advice we can all use. And for those on the front line who might really be challenged finding a time to sleep, can you recommend any strategies that might work really short term, like during a break, on how to clear your mind? Well, that's a great point as well. So as we're all experiencing a a lack of uh, control over our routines, um, it's really important to try to stake out territory for things that we we can use as a routine. So if you had 10 things that you used to do um, in your life that uh, kept you mentally healthy and now you can do five of them, you want to really make sure you're doing five of them. And one of those things might well be during the day as we're all working a lot more hours to make sure that you take five minutes, 10 minutes, and just set aside some time for yourself if you can. That can go Uh, a long way, actually, in restoring a little bit of energy. One of the things that uh, I'm also noticing is that people are not taking time out literally um, to make sure they're drinking water or having uh, food, Uh, really some of the very basic things. And as we're all caught up in the work, we may not see it. So, A, try to 
try to notice it in yourself. B, actually, if you see your coworkers, sometimes it's easier to, to worry about the people next to you than yourself. But if we all do that, then everyone gets worried about. So if you see somebody next to you and you think, uh, you know what, I think you could uh, use a break. I'm going to cover you for a minute. Then they can return the, the favor. I think that's a, a very good idea. And seeing as you're the expert, what might be in your personal toolbox that we might borrow to manage our own levels of stress? I have personally found really helpful in understanding my own stress and understanding the stress um, and anxiety of the people that I'm working with um, is to frame it. um, Actually, there are two ways that I frame it that are helpful to me. The first one is in thinking about the stages of accepting something that's difficult. So, and we are, I think, familiar with some of these stages, but there are things like denial, you know, this isn't going to happen. Um, and then the next stage is bargaining. Well, maybe it's going to happen, but, you know, we can we can go out to dinner with that one more time um, to the next phase, which is anger. And I think we, we notice that there's a fair amount of anger uh, around uh, from time to time in our workday. And one of the things about thinking about it in these stages is that it normalizes it. It's a normal reaction and it's a normal stage um, in um, understanding and processing you know traumatic things but the last stage is 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 acceptance and um, I think as I look around uh, most of us have gone through those stages and are at some level of acceptance of it but it's also not static so you could have a good day when you know you're at acceptance and the next day you come in and you've you've come down a notch to to anger or bargaining and just to be flexible around that and cut and cut to certainly cut yourself slack which is hard for us and and be cutting other others slack as well the second way i think about what's going on or frame what's going on and this has to do a little bit with with being a psychiatrist and thinking about the brain so the things that we're dealing with the stress that we're dealing with these days is the kind of stress that hits us in our lower brain in in the not the upper brain not the part that we use for executive function but the people talk about the reptilian brain or you can think about the amygdala not to get too technical but that part of your brain that really gets heated up uh, under severe stress and emotion. And if we had a, an x-ray monitoring people coming in, I would imagine we would see that people's amygdalas are, are pretty uh, lit up as they're coming in. And one of the reasons that's helpful, again, is as we're talking with each other, those of us uh, in leadership, as we're talking with the people that we lead, to have a flexibility to, to be able to say, this person is, is right now, um, you know, I'm locating them somewhere in their midbrain, and my job is to help them get out of that into their upper brain. Or even as we notice our own behavior before, you know, you walk in with a patient, before, you know, you're going to be walking in with, with your team in an important moment um, to check in with ourselves about where am I operating right now? What do I need to do if I'm in my lower brain to regulate myself so that I can um, be thinking the way I need to be thinking because uh, we're all making lots of uh, important decisions and um, we want to be making them with the uh, capacity that we have to make uh, the best decision. So those have been two other uh, ways that have been helpful for me in understanding the stress. I'm not sure if they'd be helpful to others. And at the risk of putting you on the spot, are there any tricks to get out of our lower brain? 
No, that's that's a great question, actually. And um, it, it, in some ways, it's a complicated question because people have um, their own well-worn ways. I mean, the easiest answer to it is whatever has worked for you before, you, you want to bring out. So whether you're the kind of person that likes to take five deep deep breaths and notice your breathing, whether you're the kind of person that needs to make a quick call to a friend, like on the TV show where you have the lifeline, uh, whether you need to, you know, have a coffee or a drink or something to eat. Um, there's probably many ways that people have done it before. If you can remember some of the things that you have done and even really just in the act of noticing that you were uh, in that stage is itself a technique for uh, regulating oneself. And then to add that what we were talking about before, it's easier to regulate yourself when you're getting sleep and making sure that you're eating well and, and all of that. And can we talk a little bit about fear, how to mitigate that response, or should we perhaps embrace it at times? What I, w- what I would say about uh, fear, first of all, it's great that you brought it up because um, if we deny it, d- there is that thing, I think, the more you try to deny a feeling, the, the more you drive the feeling. So this is not a time when uh, we should be telling ourselves or anyone else that there's no room for fear, that there's no room for anxiety. Um, that's one of the reasons that a, a lecture doesn't on, on stress, I think, is not exactly what people need right now. But I think it also is important to think about, well, how do we deal with fear? And I'll tell you what I observe, um, because people are doing it a day in and day out here. One of the things I observe is that people are really looking to their left and their right and their teammates and the people that are with them on the front lines and they're they're going into this uh, together and they're using each other as uh, support and as inspiration and uh, so the more that we stay connected the the more we can face fear one of the um, words obviously that's in in use right now is contagion right it's it's in use because of the virus and uh, but it's also something that, that, that we think about in um, behavioral health. Uh, there can be uh, behavioral contagion, and it, it can be negative, which is usually the way we think of it, but it can also be positive. So what we want to do is try to turn uh, contagion to our advantage. And uh, I'm reminded of a story a friend of mine told, and he did one of these endurance uh, uh, events where you lift logs and you run through the mud and and you you know climb over walls and and he had uh, he had gone several miles into this and he came to a uh, wooden wall that had I think maybe mud or oil on it and it was and he tried to do it and he couldn't do it and he tried again and he couldn't do it and so so he he sort of sat there dejected and then um, uh, a woman came by who I, I think was uh, maybe shorter than him, and he, he had no um, sense that they would be able to tackle getting over this wall because he just tried, and he's a pretty fit person. And and uh, sure enough, she uh, on her first try, she figured out a way to do it, and she went right over that wall, and you, you know where the story's going. He um, saw her do it, and he both figured out a little bit about how she did it, but he was inspired by her, and he got over the wall. So I think that's one of the things that's happening, if you can imagine, thousands of times a day uh, throughout the system. 
John, can we take a minute to talk about loss? For those on the front line, they may be dealing with loss of life. And for everyone, maybe the loss of life as we knew it at work or at home. And that's really uh, excellent to point out. I- I've been observing the emotional stress to be falling into two categories, really. One is the one we've been talking about, which is anxiety. That's pretty easy to see, right? The other is this other thing, and um, loss is a good word for it. Grief is another one that has come to mind, and it could be something that uh, may seem in in some ways small. People have uh, at home or dealing with the kids that were planning to do things that they're not able to do um, all the way to now as we get closer to the surge, um, most if not all of us will know somebody who knows somebody if not have direct connection to uh, a colleague or family member who is either suffering because of this illness or um, tragically is succumbing to it. So um, I think first of all, to mark it out as a, uh, as a separate feeling. It's different than anxiety. Um, it is, uh, it's the feeling of, uh, of sadness and loss, and the grieving process is something that we know takes time and takes uh, connectedness. It's hard to grieve alone, and those are two commodities we don't have a lot of right now either time or connectedness. So I think um, doing everything we can do to make room to notice uh, the feeling and to, even though it's hard to connect, to find ways to connect. And one of the things that has been really inspiring to me, you know, when I'm talking with staff and we're having town halls or rounding, as I frame things in terms of both the the reality, because I think we can't deny it, and this is a a culture that we have here, which is very open and honest and authentic, and there's no denying the reality of this challenge, but also uh, the other side of that coin, which is the hope and the confidence that I certainly have, and I know many people, in fact, uh, really all people that I'm milling about with, uh, certainly in leadership, have this confidence that we have that we will get through it, and that has a lot to do with uh, with our culture and how strong it is and how strong it was to begin with. But we, we need uh, very much to make extra effort to connect with each other. So I've been hearing about um, people setting up Zoom drop-ins and even after hours with their teams. Um, uh, most of the, the, the meetings that we're doing virtually obviously are at work, but finding time to connect with groups of people uh, or even just the one-on-one connections. I, I also hear stories about people you know, either hearing from a friend they hadn't heard from in quite some time or reaching out over text. And even if people don't end up uh, talking, just leaving uh, voicemails. And it it may sound um, like it wouldn't be uh, up to the task of something like grieving, but but absolutely, every time you, you know, if you're filled with a a difficult feeling, anxiety or or loss or grief, um, leaving a message for somebody that's important for you and hearing back from them actually does help with the grieving process. Now, there was one word in particular there that really stood out to me, which helps us transition to my next question. You mentioned hope. So what's the good news? What can we take away from this or be realistically optimistic about? 
Well, I think that's something that, first of all, I would I would allow everyone to answer in their own way. I'll answer it uh, from my own personal perspective. My hope derives from some very discreet um, observations and experiences. Um, this is a time when we're all having kind of a gut check, I, I would say. And uh, part of the gut check is where am I and uh, who am I with and what team am I on? And I, I frankly wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else but healthcare. Uh, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else but uh, Hartford Healthcare. And most of that has to do with, uh, if not all of it, with the culture that we have. There was somebody in, I think, Singapore who's a leader, a national leader on TV, um, speaking of how they were able to manage uh, some of this uh, COVID crisis. And he said that this is a test of your infrastructure for sure, but it's really a test of your social capital. And I've been thinking a lot about that and been very thankful that we, uh, as an organization and as a larger organization, even as a sub-organization of the Behavioral Network and, and our campuses, we have very strong social capital. That means that uh, we have trust, we have a sense of authenticity, we have a sense of comfort with being vulnerable with each other. Uh, people are willing to jump in alongside each other and find solutions. I've seen people be able to manage, you know, usually we're a very empathic culture. We still are empathic, but empathy takes time and we don't have the time. So I've seen people short circuit empathy. What, what I mean by that is uh, they jump right to cutting each other slack, giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And when you look around at other systems, organizations, uh, cultures managing this, you, you just don't see that. I would, I would wish that they had it. And I'm not saying that I'm glad they don't have it. I wish more uh, organizations did have this. But it, it's one of the things uh, that gives me hope. And then just seeing uh, the people in the field coming up with incredible solutions, the innovation that I've seen, people coming together and uh, figuring out how to solve a project, a problem, putting together a system to figure out how to deliver care to people in a different way. I mean, it's just absolutely inspiring and gives me uh, a, a lot of hope. And John, how can we mitigate burnout, for, especially for those on the front line, and help them adjust to the new normal, hopefully temporary new normal? I think it's a really important time uh, for us to be thinking about burnout. And in fact, I see people being very attentive to burnout with their teams. The way that I've been thinking about that, and, and again, this is, we're learning from each other. So I'm, I'm very uh, interested to learn from people day by day as I go along. But the way I've been thinking about it is, um, if you think about the two possible curves that we could be on as uh, healthcare workers uh, in the next coming weeks, uh, one of those curves is burnout. And for each of us individually, we want to stay away from that. We want to do everything we can to help each other stay away from that curve. The important thing for me to understand or to realize is that the, the alternative curve is not normal. So any desire, and I, I don't know that I see people doing this, but just to be explicit about it, any idea that we're going to get, uh, we have to fight to get back to uh, a normal curve where life is uh, the way it was, uh, you know, three months ago is, uh, is really unachievable. So the question is, what's the other uh, curve? And what's the other option? And I think it's a, a new resting state of equilibrium. So we're, 
you know, we're going through this stage by stage. The first stage was a lot of adrenaline, and we're still kind of in that, you know, stage. But as everybody knows, that sort of washes out at some point. So how to do everything we can to find a new resting state of, uh, of kind of crisis equilibrium. And I have no magic uh, you know, kind of thing to say about that other than the things we have been saying. So if we're making withdrawals from the bank of social capital, we have to put back in the bank of social capital. So when I see people, you know, connecting with each other, telling stories, supporting each other, somebody sent me a care package the other day, this is putting money back in the bank of social capital and our own personal reserve capital we or bank we we need to put back into that bank make deposits in that bank so things that you're doing uh, with your family uh, preserving i mean i've heard stories about people making sure they preserve taking a walk every day um, with their partner or somebody for whom uh, religious services weren't that important before but they are now and because they're a placeholder or i could tell you myself I, I learned how to bake French bread this weekend, which is actually not that hard. Um, so all of these, uh, all of these things, it may seem like a little thing, but they're they're putting resources back in uh, the banks that will uh, sustain us. And then I would just say to add uh, that to be on the lookout, not only just for yourself, certainly for yourself, but your coworkers. And if you're noticing that somebody is really having a sustained change in mood or behavior and you're really concerned about them, we have lots of ways now to reach out. The the website, our intranet website uh, has uh, been doing a good job of cataloging them, but they're everything from um, you know, somebody to talk to uh, over the phone, somebody to see more formally, groups that are getting together to support each other. So it really is a time to be on the lookout for each other and reach out for help uh, if we need it. So John, as a leader, what can you tell us about how you're working together with your team now who are on the ground and giving them a voice? Well, and I'll, I'll say it's a really interesting time to be a leader. I am uh, learning so much myself, watching others, watching great leadership go on. One of the things that I have learned myself as a leader is in a crisis like this, especially as it goes on for so long, that uh, we have an obligation as leaders because we have a view to things from behind the front lines. Um, we have, we're able to put together information and uh, make decisions that uh, hopefully are good decisions. And I think there's lots of really good decisions being made. But, but what's different is in a situation like this, I find that we also need to and are being called upon to really empower our teams on the front lines. Uh, yes, we need to be uh, aligned uh, around the most important things, but the teams on the ground have also been doing an, an amazing job coming up with solutions for their local program or needs that are particular to their patients and uh, so to allow them to have the uh, protected time uh, and space and uh, permission to be able to do that I've seen that solve many many problems it's sort of like crowdsourcing the solution to what seem like insurmount insurmountable problems and yet we're solving them and I think it, one part of the way that we're solving them is uh, that people in the front lines are being innovative and uh, making great calls. 
And uh, as a leader, that's been just really amazing to see and and to, to learn. Dr. Santo Pietro, thank you again for joining us on the podcast and for lending your unique perspective to help not only those on the front line, but frankly, all of us. And it's really an honor for you to ask me to be on this. And I want to thank you for focusing on how we keep each other well and support each other through this really challenging time. I know that we can do it, and I know that's the way to do it. The novel coronavirus has taken its emotional toll. Help is available. Call your existing provider for a virtual health visit or leave a message at 888-984-2408, and we will call you back. Thanks for listening to Hartford HealthCare's podcast series, Coping with COVID.